You know, I always, um, do you guys know who Groucho Marx is? The old comedian, the Marx Brothers guy, the like big mustache and big brows and glasses. And he, um, he said one time when he was asked to, uh, asked to come back to somewhere where he had already spoken, he said, I don't, I don't know, I would, I would never join a country club that would allow me to be a member. And so sometimes I kind of feel that way when I get invited back. I think, I, okay, I'm surprised that Mackenzie is inviting me back, but um, I love to be able to, is the sound okay? Can you hear okay? Okay, great. No, nope, I think that's good. Um, so uh, this series got in. Mackenzie um, asked if, if tonight we would focus on this idea of God in fear. Um, when I think about, you know, one thing that I love about Halloween, this is probably my, well, like my third favorite thing about Halloween, is every year when it rolls around, um, have you guys seen those, those scare pictures, like from the scare room that go around the internet? Have you seen these things? I sent some to McKenzie. Throw some up there on, uh, on the screen. So these are like, you know, like the, the, uh, the maze thing you guys are going to? This is like one of those things that apparently at some point in, the, in like the maze, something, I have no idea what pops out, something pops out. This guy's strangling his buddy. This girl's like attacking her mom, right? I mean, it's just utter fear. Look at those two dudes. There's like, this was a bad idea, you know, to come in here. Um, this, <laughs> this, never date a guy like this, ladies, okay? He we will leave you behind in the dust. And <laughs> I mean, that's panic. That is sheer panic. Oh, it, this dude hopped. He, he's got like a 40-inch vertical. Look at, I mean, he's on his buddy's back there. Uh, this guy's face is classic. Look at that guy. He's going to be no good to you if you're ever, like, caught. This guy brings, like, his four wives in with him and pushes them out first, right? <clears throat> Five, sorry. Uh, <laughs> this guy went solo. Idiot, right? Don't go solo into one of these things. <laughs> this guy's he's just <laughs> closing his eyes, hoping it will go away. Uh, th that kid, I think he is absolutely, like, he is weeping. He is crying from the fear that he has there. That girl's face is just beautiful. It's just classic. I love that one. This dude's my favorite. Look at this guy. This guy has lost all control of his body, and he is just running as fast as he possibly can. <laughs> so it's just, it's sort of this funny, and like I said, like I can look at these pictures. I will literally spend an hour just flipping through these pictures and just laughing, like trying to imagine the shrieks and like their body just losing control, right? There's something, something about this. Something about scaring. When, um, when I first got, I, I got married in 98, my brother, who's about a year and a half older than I did, got married in 99. So we were both like newlyweds early on kind of thing and, and didn't know a whole lot of people. And so we ended up just kind of hanging out a lot with each other. Well, one thing my brother Mark and I both, like we loved scaring our new wives. It was just so, like, is that a guy thing or just a, like any other guys near? Like, is it fun? Like, when you jump out, at a, does Justin do that, Mackenzie? Oh, it, there's this deep joy of just, you know, blah, just scaring them, you know, they just scream. And, and, so, and so Mark and I had this competition for, gosh, it went on for like probably a year and a half. We're like, okay, whoever can scare their new bride like the most. And so like, okay, well, how do we judge it? So we had like assessments and all these different things. And, and uh, one day Mark called me and he goes, dude, he goes, it's over. I won. He goes, she cried. She literally broke down and cried. I was like, dang it. What did you do? Apparently he just like opened the shower curtain on her or something. And just, I don't know, he had a mask on or something. And she's like, ah, and she just goes. <laughs> and he was like, oh, geez, I'm sorry. Um, I don't do it anymore because my wife, like, early on, she thought it was kind of, oh, that's kind of cute. And she just, like, hits me now. Like, she's angry. So 
I don't, I don't really scare her anymore, but um, I wonder for you, like, what would be, you guys remember uh, Fear Factor? Is that on? That's not, is that on anymore? Rerun, maybe. Fear Factor. Do you remember that show, Fear Factor? Um, get a group of people, and it was like, you had to go through some experience, so it was like five people, it was like, okay, all of you have to be, like, submerged in a car in water, right? Or, like, buried in a in a casket in the ground for like an hour or something, like there's no way I can do that sort of thing. Um, or, you know, put like a spider in your mouth, you know, just like stuff. And so it's all about like who can handle the most fear kind of thing. And I wonder in your life, like if you were, if you were to write down, what is it that is either, maybe it's a life fear, like something that meaning it's just, it's sort of been there for a long time, maybe like it got instilled early on, or maybe it's a season of life fear. Like, you're, you, you've never really thought about it until you're at your current season of life. You know what I mean by that? And then all of a sudden, like, there are things that you kind of start spending a whole lot of time thinking about. And not just meditating, like, excited, but more like wringing your hands, you know? Like, man, what if, what if that doesn't happen? What if that does happen? Like, thinking about those sorts of things, I wonder what kinds of ideas you would write down on a piece of paper. You know, for me, um, I'm like mid-40s. I was going to say low-40s, but I'm mid-40s. And, you know, it's, it's, I mean, there's some aging things. Like for me, some aging things for my parents, like the age they're getting to. With my kids, I've got four kids, two high schoolers, a middle schooler, and an elementary. And, you know, I have fears of like, gosh, what, like, what kind of decisions are they going to make in life? What kind of relationships are they going to get into? And what kinds of consequences will there be because of the life decisions? You know what I mean? Or like friends. I, this last year I had one of my, my, probably my closest friend in the world. And we've been best friends for like 16 years. And he's like, hey, moving to Arizona. And I'm, you know, I was like, I'm happy for you. I'm like, because it's like, he's my best friend, you know? And it, it was like, so even fears of like, gosh, like losing close friendships, you know, that I might have, or, or even fears of okay, I'm 45, am I going to accomplish, like, those things that I, gosh, remember when I was 20, those things that I wanted to do, those, those dreams, like, are those just out of reach? You know what I mean? So, these are fears, like, that I have, and I've got a lot more, <laughs> and other just even personal insecurity fears in relationships with other people. It's interesting, you know, do you know the first time in the Bible where fear is mentioned? Any guesses? first time. Yeah. Page three. Page three, humanity is put in this idyllic place, the garden. They're told to tend it, and, and of course they're told, you know, enjoy everything. Run. Enjoy it all. There's one thing I ask, and that's that you trust me when it comes to the knowledge of good and evil, determining it's, um, and so he says, not that. Don't eat that. And of course, we know, if you know the story, this, this serpent comes and deceives. And they eat of the fruit. And that's the first time in Scripture where it's mentioned, because if you remember Yahweh God, it says he comes walking in the garden. And he's looking for them. And he says, where are you? And they say, well, we were hiding because we were, we were afraid. Right? And, then, and so on page three, like right off the bat, it's like this grand epic narrative of a, of a story, but right on page three, you're like, wait, is this a tragedy? <laughs> because this crippling fear is introduced like right on page three of this epic narrative, and it's now a part of the human condition, isn't it? 
Every single, I know every single one of you has a fear or else you would not be human. <laughs> you have some fears and deep insecurities in your life. And see, I think, here's what I would propose. There was an antecedent question to that fear coming about. And here's what it was. Does God really love me? That was the question that was put in their mind, right? Uh, God's holding out on you. He's holding back from you. He, and so the question, does he really love me? Does God really have my best interest in mind? Or do I have to kind of assert my own will in order to secure my interest? Does that make sense? Does God really love me? I would suggest that's one of the antecedent questions to all of the brokenness in the world. It's the antecedent question to the fear in my life. Does God really, really love me? It's interesting, First uh, John 4, 18, it'll be up on the screens, makes an interesting statement about connecting these two together. First John 4, 18 says, perfect love, what? It, it casts out fear. Well, if that's, if that's true, may I, may I suggest to you that imperfect love breeds insecurity. If perfect love casts out fear, imperfect love breeds insecurity. See, I... I've never been perfectly loved before, but on the other hand, I've, I've also never perfectly loved other people in my life, right? I say I believe in the high ideal of, of love, and yet I've had sharp words with some of the people who I say are most important to me in life. I say I believe in justice, and yet I've treated people unfairly. I didn't intend to, I didn't set out to do that, but in retrospect, I realized that, that I had. And see, human love, and it's great. I'm not putting human love down. Human love is wonderful. It's fantastic, right? That's, that's, that's why we're a community here for it. But it's imperfect. And because of those imperfections, you've been saddled with some fears in life because of being treated and not with total love. And you, in turn, you have saddled other people with fears and insecurities because of the imperfect love by which you have loved them. And see, so here's, here's how I think those fears work in our lives. Let me, let me kind of give you an illustration. Um, and I, I, I'm an animal lover, love animals, so don't like, like the mistreatment of animals. <laughs> but if you've, ever, if you've ever thought about or learned how they used to uh, train circus elephants, have you ever heard this story before, how, how they would train them, is when they would take a little baby elephant and they would bring it into the circus and it, and it was untrained, and it was wild, and what they would do is they would take a huge iron stake, and they would drive it deep into the dirt, and they would take a big iron chain, and they would put that other chain on his ankle. And then he would do what all untrained elephants do. He would have a baby elephant hissy fit, and he would tug and pull and get away and do everything he can to get away until finally he realized, I can't get away. I am stuck here. Now, fast forward 20 years, and you can go revisit that adult elephant right? And do you know how they keep the adult elephant in place? They take a tiny little wooden stake, and they put it in the ground, and a tiny little rope, and they tie it to his ankle just tight enough that he can feel the pressure. That's all that's needed. And this enormously powerful, amazing, amazingly strong beast who could at any second walk away chooses to stand right there and not move. Why? Because inside that elephant's brain is a baby elephant who knows that he cannot get away. That's the story that has been told to him or her. 
He cannot get away. And the only thing that's holding him there, which is what's phenomenal, is, is a fear, but it's a myth. He believes in a mythology, and so he will not move. It's, it's absolutely holding him back. And I wonder for you, for me, what fear in your life is there? Maybe it got planted there really early on in life. Maybe it's something that you've picked up more recently because of experiences. What fear is in your life that may be functioning like that, like, like holding you back from making your maximum contribution, holding you back to really engage in a healthy relationship with another person? What, what, what fears deep in your life keep you from that? And so you choose, you choose to stand right there, to not move at all because of how that works. Because see, we tell ourselves stories, right? Um, I, I would even go so far as to suggest that um, fears and storytelling are almost the exact same thing. Think about this. Fears that live in our lives and storytelling function almost the exact same way, right? Uh, there are characters to our fears, probably you, <laughs> people in your life, people you know. Uh, there's a plot. There's a beginning. There's a middle. There's a, if you're afraid of flying, right, the beginning of your, of your plot is getting on the airplane. Uh, second part is, you know, engine goes a little bad. I mean, it's like whatever you're afraid of, you, you, you tell yourself the story in your mind about, oh, I know how this is going to go, right? I think about this, and so I tell myself this story. There's, there's imagery, just like in stories. It's true in fears, right? You think, I mean, you have graphic images in your mind of what will happen if that fear takes place, don't you? I do. And there's suspense. That's maybe the worst part. Just like in a story, the suspense is what's going to happen next. In a fear, what are you thinking about? What's going to happen? What's going to happen next? So they function in really a lot of the same ways. And see, I have deep insecurities and fears in my own life, like very deep. And, and there's storytelling that goes on <laughs> with those inside my head. Either the stories are kind of reinforcing those those fears, they're kind of um, running through them, like playing them out, you know, like this is how I would imagine it happening in this situation, this is how I would imagine, or playing out previous ones, I remember when that happened, and just sort of on, on repeat, like a record that just kind of keeps skipping and skipping and skipping, <laughs> and that's how our fears tend to work. And you ever, you ever live your life in fear of like what other people think about you, or make decisions based on what you think? other people think about you, or fear of like, what if I disappoint the person? What if I let the person down? And so your decisions themselves are guided by those fears that you have. So sometimes those are the stories. Sometimes the, the way the story fu functions with me is I, I try to compensate for my fears. And so, and so I, kind of, um, I kind of pose a false self. I want to present a, a different view of myself to you because I don't want you to see the fears and insecurities, because if you saw them, maybe you, you might not like me. And so, and so I put forward a false self. I tell myself a story, a false story, and it's, it, it looks like pride. It's just compensating for those fears that I have. Um, Self-help gurus will tell you this. Just tell yourself a new story. 
just tell yourself a new story. You get the story of that, just tell yourself a new story. Problem is, who's, who's making up the story? You, with all the insecurities and the hurts and the goofiness and all that, you're, you're telling yourself your own story. That doesn't work. Your own story is not good enough for you. My own story is not good enough for me. Jesus says there's an author with a capital A, and he's writing, he's writing a meta-narrative. Do you know what a meta-narrative is? It's this idea that all of us have mini-narratives. Your story of your life, story of what you think the world's like. You have a story of what you think's you know, going on in the world. And A meta-narrative is this grand, overarching interpretation of the meaning of everything that's going on. It's this big story. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? Jesus says God has a meta-narrative, this grand, overarching story, and he actually wants you to step into your, his story. But he says, but I need you to relinquish your story <laughs> to do that, which is kind of hard. I don't know about you. He says, uh, you're going to have to let go of your story. Some of Jesus' words, if you remember, is you have to die to self. You remember that? If you want to find yourself, you must lose yourself for me. It sounds counterintuitive. What he's saying is you've got to lose your little mini story if you want to step into the grand story and find your real story in it. One of my favorite um, authors, Rosaria Butterfield, um, she she wrote a book called uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She's like this amazing background story. Definitely encourage you to read the book. But she's, she says this in, in that book, or actually this is in her sequel, it was in uh, Openness Unhindered. She says, stepping into God's story demands abandoning the deeply held desires to make meaning of our own lives on our own terms based on the preciousness of my own feelings. She's, she's getting at that death to self. That's painful. To really relinquish your story, it hurts. It's very difficult to step into God's story and relinquish <clears throat> your own there. And see, this is, this is, you might say, okay, what's the story? Well, I, I quoted 1 John for you earlier, perfect love casts out fear. He says in, in the preceding chapter these words, 1 John 3, 1 through 3, this is the story that Jesus says, you can step into this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be like has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is the whole point we're here tonight is this. Let me, let, let me read this passage one more time for you. I want, I want it to sink in. <laughs> I want it to kind of bathe over you because this is the story. You need to know the story. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, here's your new identity in this new story. I'm a child of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now, now we are children of God. Now. And what we will be like has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves 
just as he is pure. See, I, I, have, I have fears in my life, and what I have to do is I have to daily bring them before God. I have to daily take them. And sometimes they're different ones, different days, based on what's, I've got triggers <laughs> for my fears, but I have to daily take those fears and insecurities before God, and I have to be reminded, because I have like spiritual dementia, I have to be reminded that now I'm a child of God, that I'm loved, that he has lavished love on me. See, God's love, any, any philosopher, any people take philosophy 101 in here? Okay, good. You'll know what I'm talking about, Mackenzie. <laughs> you hate it, huh? No good? Oh. God's love is ontological. Ontology refers to the essence of something, a be, one's being. God is not called a lover in Scripture. It says God is love. That's his ontology. Ontologically, God is love, which means if God's love is ontological, that means that it's not improved by my good performance and it's not diminished by my poor performance. God's love for you, it's not improved by your good performance today or tomorrow or the next day, and it's not diminished by your poor performance. God is love. That is his essence, his being. It cannot change. One of um, my wife and I, we have such different tastes in movies. Anyone, like the only one who I know who has more of a different taste in movies is Mackenzie and Justin. They have like the most opposite taste in movies that I could, I've ever heard of in my life. I'm surprised you guys got married and got together. Um, <clears throat> But, but Kristen and I have very, very different taste in movies. Like, um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, if it's like Liam Neeson, like snapping necks and just killing people, I'm just like, yeah, that's freaking awesome. You know, or Mel Gibson just torching people. I was watching one, and he, even if it's cheesy lines, like, I don't care. As long as it's good action. Like, I, I was watching one the other day, this dude walks into the bank, he goes, he goes, I'm here to chew bubble gum and kick some A. He goes, and I'm all out of bubble gum. And then he's like, and I was like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, but I love action movies. I love action movies. There's one movie, though, that like we have absolute agreement on. We think it's like absolutely fabulous. I will watch it by myself, okay? And I don't tell everyone this because the movie is The Notebook, you know? I know, I know. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, I'm somewhat secure enough in my manhood to say that, but um, do you know this movie? This, I remember the first time I watched it, th there's a certain part in the movie where even today, not every time, but like I will, I will, I will cry in a part in this movie. And if you, uh, for those of you who don't know the movie, let me just kind of set it up for you. So the movie starts out with this old man, James Gardner is the guy, and he's this old man, and he goes to this rest home, and you kind of get the impression early on, like, oh, that's nice. He shows up every day, and he reads stories to the people there. People there have memory problems. They have dementia of some kind or another, and, and, and he's showing up and reading them stories and taking care of them. And so he, he goes into one woman's room, and uh, at first she's kind of hesitant, and the orderlies say, it's okay. He comes here every day and he reads stories. And so he starts reading this story <clears throat> to her. And so the whole movie is in the present, but as he's, re the, he's reading the story, and the story is about these, this young man and this young woman in a town, like this little small town somewhere outside uh, Charleston, North Carolina, I think. And, and so it's this, throughout the movie, it's current time, but it kind of keeps flashing back 
to these moments as this old man is telling this old woman this story. And, and the story is really interesting. It's about this young man. He's, he's very, um, has very modest means, comes from modest means, and this girl with her family comes to town like for the summer. And you get the impression that they're very wealthy. They're, they're renting this big, beautiful home. Her family is intact. There's a father and a mother, but they're very pretentious. His family, they're not pretentious, but it's not intact. There's a father, but there's no mother. We don't, was there a divorce? Did she die? We don't know, but there's some brokenness and hurt in the family. And he has a very modest education, but he loves the poetry of Walt Whitman. She has schooling from the very best education you could possibly imagine. And, and everything is against these two couples getting together. Nothing should, nothing should work with these two getting together. And yet, against all odds, they strike up this romance in this relationship. And, and the, the parents of the girl don't really like it. They, they have dreams for her. They have a story for her where they want her to go. But they love each other. They go through the end of the summer. At the end, she has to leave, and she's crying, and he's crying. But, but he promises, I'll, I'll write you every day. Well, the mother hears about this, and so she begins to intercept these letters that come. And so he writes to her every single day for 365 days for a whole year. She never gets any of the letters, and he never gets letters back. And so he thinks, she doesn't love me. She's not writing me back. And she thinks, he doesn't love me because he said he'd write me, and he's not writing me. And then World War II breaks out, and through different circumstances, they're driven further apart. And it's like everything is against this relationship working. Everything is against it happening. And it's right then in the story that, that the, the author kind of tips his cards. And what you realize is this story is the story of this old man and this old woman. It's their story. And so it goes on through the movie, and at the very end, they've gone through the whole day. He's been reading this story to her. And there's this beautiful table set in the room. The lights are dimmed. There's a white tablecloth. There's, there's a bud vase with a rose in it. A wonderful meal. Music is playing in the room. And it's all the music that informed their relationship over the years. And what you get is the whole room, it's pulsating with this man's love for this woman. The whole environment, everything, it's pulsating with his love for this woman, and he gets done, and she says, that's the most beautiful story I've ever heard. She said, and it sounds so familiar. And all of a sudden, cognition washes across her face, and she goes, that's our story, isn't it? And he goes, yes. And she said, how long do we have? And he said, last time it was five minutes. And she said, how are the kids? That's a question a mother would ask, right? And he, he says, good, they came by to see you today. Tell them I love them. He says, I will. And the music's playing, and she says, would you hold me? Can we dance? And so he holds her close, and they begin to dance, and she's in his arms. And just as quickly as she came into cognition, she goes out of cognition. She finds herself in the arms of a stranger. She begins to scream and push back, and the orderlies have to come in and sedate her. <clears throat> and, they're, and they're holding her down, sedating her. And it's, it's at that moment when they panned over to the, the old man against the wall, that's when I, that's when I cried. And he's sitting there, he, he's biting his knuckles, and he's, he's weeping as he's, watching, as he's watching this moment. And as I reflect, as I thought about that, why, did, why, did, like, why does it hit me like that? And here's why, because I would suggest that's all of our story. See, each one of us, we're, in, we're involved in this great cosmic romance. God shows up every day, and he longs, he tells us the story. He tells us this story. 
Now you are my children. Now, today. And I don't know about you, but with my fears and my distractions and all these sorts of things, most of my life I live with spiritual dementia. I don't see him. I don't hear him. I don't know that he's reading me every day a story about how much he dearly loves me. And why I cried in that moment, I realized, is when, when you look at James Gardner's character and he's weeping, I think that's a window into the heart of God. God longs to come and give us environments where his love is pulsating to us. But again, so often, I just live with that spiritual dementia. Or sometimes I have those moments where I embrace him, I receive that love, and then a distraction, something over here, a fear, an anger, a bother, and, I'm out, and I'm, I find myself in the arms of a stranger <laughs> again. And those fears, that's how they stay in me. That's how the fears don't get rooted out, is because I, I resist the love of God. Because if I truly believe that God loved me as much as he loves Jesus, I don't know about you, but I think I would live differently. I would behave differently. I would feel and think differently. I would engage with people differently. But so often I forget it. And so I'm invited every day, hey Brent, you know those fears? Bring them to me. I love you so much. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be like has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he's pure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess, God, that we, sometimes through choices that we make, sometimes because of the circumstances we find ourselves in, but that we do live in a kind of spiritual dementia where we don't receive the love of God. We don't allow it to be lavishly poured over us. We refuse the embrace, and instead we, we, we live in a different story, a much smaller, more pathetic story, stories that are geared around fears that we have. But Father, we don't want to live there. I don't want to live there. God, would you, would you show me each day, Father, how to refuse my little tiny narrative would you show me how to step into the meta-narrative that you are telling in which your love, it's lavished on me and all of a sudden I can engage with other people not needing, not needing their affirmation, not fearing them. But I come to you, God, dependent on you, the one who is completely independent, so that I can then go out into the world a little bit more like you, not needing approval from them, because I know I have it from you. I know I am loved and embraced by you. God, thank you for these 20s and 30s in this room. Thank you for the stories that you are writing, how you're writing their small stories into your big story. God, I pray that they would experience and know the deepness of your love in a brand new way, morning by morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.